Howie Rose is a noted fan of the Fab Four. What are the three greatest songs by the Beatles? Wow. Well, I'll start with Let It Be. It's always been a personal favorite and one that has deep personal meaning for me. So that's one. Um, a Day in the Life, because it's so technically diverse, was groundbreaking, has a little eerie feel to it, a bit of surrealism. It's just phenomenal. And, um, and for the third one, I'd have to say She Loves You, just because that's the one that started it for me. The first time I heard that song in January of 1964, I was hooked. But you know, the funny thing is, if you ask me this question an hour from now, I might give you three totally different songs. Exactly right. Uh, great choices. I especially like She Loves You at the end there. Uh, you're listening to the Hockey Press Pass, uh, Hockey Press Pass podcast sponsored by Instat Hockey. My guest is Howie Rose, the former play-by-play announcer of the Islanders on TV and Rangers on radio, and still the voice of the New York Mets on radio. He deservedly won a pair of Emmy Awards uh, for his work on the Islanders. Howie, we hear of the actor's nightmare and different people, different and nightmares for a play-by-play -play announcer. What would be potentially, or maybe you lived it, the big nightmare? Oh, I lived it. Uh, you know, I think blowing a call and whether it was a big call to the individual personally or in the scope of what the game was representing, the very, very first game I ever broadcast in the NHL it was on January 24th, 1985, Rangers against the Detroit Red Wings. I'm working because of a string of uh, circumstances that night with a big whistle, Bill Chadwick, who hadn't done a game on radio probably in 15 years or close to it. And so there was a whistle and I think there was a penalty. And during the time between the penalty being called and the drop of the puck, Bill says something like, you know, I'm the guy that invented all the hand signals for the referees so they know what... And so, you know, I wanted to acknowledge that. I probably shouldn't have. And so they drop the puck and I say something to Bill like, well, you know, an artist's work is never really appreciated until he's gone. And before I could finish saying that, the puck was in the net. Mm -hmm. Peter Sundstrom scored for the Rangers. There was nothing I could do to disguise it because it was the home crowd that let everybody know that a goal had been scored before I told them. I thought, well, that's it. I'll never do another game in the NHL. But thankfully, prior to that and after that, I did a decent enough job that they asked me back. Yeah, they sure did for years and years. But that brings up a great point because, you know, maybe coming out of commercial or the color commentator going too long. Hockey's so fast paced, right? So whether it's Joe or Billy or Butchie, you know, you always run that risk of them going on too long. Would you have a rule like if it once it gets inside the blue line, the play by play guy takes over? Not that, not that your partners always listened. <laughs> well, you know what? It, it sort of depended on who we were working for at the time because people had different philosophies. Now, we had a guy who was an executive producer for a while that you'll probably remember by the name of Dan Ronane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very nice guy yeah. and a big hockey fan from Detroit. And he was old school. He felt that the play by play guy should talk when the puck's in play and when it stops, you know, when there's a whistle let the analyst in. But the broadcasting sort of evolution suggested that gradually the analyst was really becoming the star of the show. And it was up to the play-by-play -play guy, not even necessarily to lead him into something specific, but to make sure that that analyst had the room to talk about what needed to be, if not described, then shown graphically via replay or even otherwise. And so 
I always like to have more of a conversation, particularly if the puck was in a neutral zone or, you know, there was a line change and one team's got the puck in its own end and you got forever to get out of the zone. Uh, certain executive producers were okay with that. Others were not. But in a big spot, uh, Stanley Cup overtime being the most obvious one, I, I have to believe everybody's on guard to make sure that doesn't happen. Absolutely. It's kind of Absolutely. understood. Uh, well, it should be. The bigger, <laughs> the bigger the moment, you know, you have to have the instincts of when to lay out and when to sort of dominate. You know, if there's 30, 40 seconds to go on a potential series clincher, let's say, and the crowd is howling and, uh, you know, the team that's trailing by a goal is desperate to even it up and everything's on the line. That's when there's really nothing to analyze. That's when you just need to let the play-by-play -play guy, and sometimes it's in very minimal terms, talk about what's happening on the ice. You don't have to describe every single pass. But again, you know, I'm talking more about TV, and in, at my core, I'm a radio guy. And I've always felt, having done both, TV is like stealing. It's so easy relative to radio. And I don't know, to be honest with you, Chris, how you even do radio in the NHL anymore because the game is just so so stinking fast, even more so than five years ago when I retired from it. That's a great point. You, you took us to your first game, but now I want to go really back to the beginning. The technology has changed. There's different ways of doing things. But you know, my understanding, and you know, I used to write out press passes sometimes for young people who'd want to go and sit in a corner and record a game into a microphone in some way, a cassette or otherwise. We won't date ourselves, right? So, but what was that process like? I believe that what some of your first games doing that were at the Coliseum. Yeah, what happened was originally the first year. You have to remember, I, I fell in love with hockey in 1966. So it was just the Rangers in New York. And I was head over heels, totally immersed. Eventually I had season tickets for the Rangers beginning in 1970. And a few times I brought my tape recorder to the garden and did play by play from my seat, which was in the last row of the building near the broadcast booth. And I'd known Marv Albert and he would walk by my seat literally on the way to his booth and if he saw my tape recorder, he handed me the press notes for that night. So I had a better idea of what I was talking about. But what really, really helped establish, you know, the, uh, the foundation for me was, I would say, your predecessor, but really the originator of your role with the Islanders, a fellow by the name of Holly T. Chester III, um, let very few of us, but I was fortunate to be one of them, collegiate media, college media, into the Coliseum those first couple of years. And I would take that press pass. I went with a friend of mine who was a writer at the Queens College newspaper, Steve Taub, and we would find an area in the press box where nobody was seated. And we played it completely straight, no messing around. We didn't have commercials to read. We just stopped the tape recorder. But from the moment we hit play and record, we might just as well have been doing Hockey Night in Canada. That's how seriously we took it. And that not only allowed me to establish, as I say, the foundation for doing play-by-play, -play, but that press pass enabled me to go downstairs afterwards and interview the players and, if necessary, the coaches. And I, I'm telling you, Crab, may have told you this before. There are two people in my career who I look back on and say that without their knowing it at the time, they were integral parts of building my 
I'll use the word success, I'm embarrassed by it, but whatever I've done over 40 odd years, I owe a great deal to Al Arbor and Joe Torrey. When Joe Torrey became the manager of the Mets, that's when I started doing game, uh, working at WHN as their morning sports guy. And Al, of course, from the moment he became the Islanders coach, 73, 74, that's when I started getting those press passes. Both of them treated me as though I had been a beat writer for 30 years. And I'll never forget that because they gave me the confidence that the questions I was asking and the tack I was taking was the proper one. That's uh, really, really great to hear about both of them. Obviously, Al is very close to my heart as well. He didn't know uh, Joe Torrey. So that's really uh, lovely to hear that. When you were doing those first tapes, and then maybe even when you were doing those first couple of seasons of games, because it's tough to perfect this, What were there, were there certain mistakes or things that were particularly a struggle or a challenge, whether it be getting the, you know, calling the lines, getting the numbers right? What, what were the hardest things that you had to keep on working? You know, the hardest thing, and I've told this to young hockey, aspiring hockey broadcasters forever, is get the pace of the game down. It almost doesn't matter what names you're calling out. Don't worry about the names. Just don't let the flow and pace of a hockey game overwhelm you because it can. And I think once you get that, most other things fall into place. You've got to learn to memorize numbers. And along with that, Sometimes numbers aren't enough. You can get two guys, like if you have jerseys like the Rangers wear, for instance, 16 and 18 from a distance look identical. So you need to sort of differentiate between those two players' size. And if they're similar in size, you got to look for something else. Maybe one of them uses white tape on a stick blade and the other uses black. Things like that. You need to look for distinguishing features among players whom you might confuse with each other. Those are tricks of the trade you'll learn as you go along. But the first thing you have to do is learn how to control the pace of the game rather than have it control you. What does what did your table look like? And was it the same from your your early in your career toward the end? Obviously different probably for TV and radio, but specifically I'm thinking about the chart, right? Whether it's Mar, all the great announcers through the years, you, you know, is it the line for hockey now? We're talking mm -hmm. line combinations, E pairings, goalies, you know, some stats underneath. What what did that look like for you? Chris, I will tell you to this day, I would be embarrassed to show anybody my old hockey charts because they weren't very well thought out, thought out. I've never been known as a great organizer. So what I did was I would, I would have a sheet with all of the players from the team that, well, in this case, say I'm doing the Islanders on TV and whatever other team they were playing, say the St. Louis Blues. So I'd have all the Blues listed. I'd have the defensemen up here, the goalies up there and and the rest, you know, on the forwards underneath. And I would just have stats or, you know, if not an anecdote, then at least a little note or two that I could use to throw something in about them. But as far as line combinations, I might scribble them out separately. I would have the Islanders on the back in, in line combination. I would certainly have the lines from watching pregame warmups. I wasn't crazy about uh, getting line combinations in the morning because they would tend to change a lot depending on the coach. Roger Nielsen, before I even knew him, before he was with the Rangers, Roger was famous for showing line combinations in the morning different from what he'd use at night. That was intentional because he didn't want the opposition to know anything. So to me, the line combinations you saw in the pregame warmup 
those were the ones to worry about. And I had my background information on all the players, so it didn't matter really who slotted in with where. It's funny you say that. It just, I, I, I brought back a memory. Uh, Peter Laviolette in particular, he was accessible to the media. He would speak, and he's still obviously having a great career. He's gone on past the Islanders, do very well for himself. But I would have people come up to me furious, angry, you know, after the morning skate because he wouldn't just share everything with them. So and in other I, words, you're talking about Bob Cole. Uh, he might have been one. Bob, Bob yeah, but, is one of the greatest hockey broadcasters of all time but he was absolutely obsessed with line combinations in the morning. But they, they might, never mind even change before warmups. They might change after the first shift. So like, I always wanted to be respectful and Peter and, you know, I'm singling him out. There are other coaches too. Uh, and it was never about wanting to, you know, tell the least what the line combinations, there's scouts all over the place. Everybody's watching the morning skate, but um, I just, I never understood it. You know, I prepared for this interview, but there's, you know, there comes a point where there's only so much you could do, right? If you need to prepare to talk to me, then you're overworking yourself. Well, you know, I'm new <laughs> to like this. we've known each other five minutes. You know? I'm a rookie at yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. So, but so not important to you, but you want to get them down at some point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just better for an organizational sense. But you know what else, too, has changed in the game over the years? When I started watching the game in the mid-60s and probably through most of the 70s, a line, an average line shift was probably about an hour, an hour, uh, a minute and 15 seconds, an hour and 15 minutes if it was Phil Esposito's line. But, you know, uh, uh, the average line shift now, too, is so much shorter. They're going 30, 45 seconds now. And so you've really got to be focused mm -hmm. more so, I think, than ever before. And, and sometimes if you get too concerned about the lines, you know, this coach might be mixing it up on the move and they're going so fast in terms of throwing people over the boards and jumping back onto the bench. You can't keep up as long as you know who's who you can figure the rest out and lean on your analysts for that stuff too. stay in your lane. Okay, so we have a time here of, uh, you'd have to tell me how many years that you did the Islanders on TV at the same time you did the Mets on radio. How many years was well, that about? Well, I mean, I started doing both and I wasn't supposed to. I got the Islander job in the summer of 95. That was 95, 96. I knew I'd have some role with the Mets the next year, but I didn't expect it to be play by play. It just happened to work out that they needed somebody. They asked me and I said, well, this is kind of recomplicating my life because I had made a specific move to uncomplicate it. Um, and I would have been very happy just doing hockey for the rest of my career if that's what it was gonna be. But um, long story short, uh, partial schedules for baseball, half seasons or more from 96 on, and then full season of baseball from 04 on. So really, for the last what, 11 or 12 years of my career with the Islanders, I was doing both sports full time, and, and that just was untenable. So going back and forth, though, it, it, mm -hmm. for at, at times, you know, maybe within the same day, are you? It was it was it challenging at all to? I'm a TV guy stealing money, as you would say. Or I'm a radio guy. Was, did that ever throw you off, or you just got into a comfortable? Group? Nah, nah. Because the thing of it, you know what? I'd look forward to days like that from this standpoint. That the two sports couldn't be more disparate mm -hmm. in how they present themselves as play-by-play -play vehicles radio radio is just the best because you take this blank canvas and you create images you're painting 
I mean, you're painting on radio verbally. Television, you're just punctuating, you're narrating. And so for me, um, I used to love going from a radio game to a TV game because I felt like the TV game, I could take a breath. Vice versa, you know, all right, I've been on the air now for two and a half, three hours. Boy, now I got to go to radio where I'm really going to have to go pedal to the metal. And so I like it in reverse. You love the game of hockey. I know that firsthand. You, maybe you don't get to it as much or get to watch as much as you used to. I don't, I don't know. But what I would want to know is whether it's on the radio, on TV, are there, are there anybody, is there anybody or a couple of announcers who you feel are doing a really great job at well, I do watch because I do get the games in Florida where I spend the winter now. And that's a big part of my time down there at night and nothing's going on. Just turn the game on and, and enjoy. Um, you know, there are the usual suspects, of course, like, I mean, Sam's a Hall of Famer for obvious reasons. And, and you know, I, I've always gotten a kick out of Pat Foley in Chicago. Um, but there is some, I like, I'm, I'm very, maybe I don't have the right to be proud of Brendan but I am proud of Brendan Burke because MSG was kind enough to ask me to be part of the process when they were looking for my successor. And I'll tell you a story that I really haven't told anybody before, but I recommended two people to them. I said, you can't go wrong with either one of these, Brendan Burke or Steve Mears. I said, here's the difference. If you want a guy who, who I think would probably be here as long, if not longer than I was, and I was there 21 years, that's Brendan. I said, Mirzi is a terrific play-by-play -play guy, but I'm telling you now, his life growing up was the Pittsburgh Penguins. And if the Penguins job ever opens up, he's gone. He'll go to Pittsburgh. And, and that's why I said that if I had to choose between the two because of that, I would go with Brendan. So I feel that I had almost a proprietary interest in Brendan's career at its inception in the NHL but he's just, you know, flown right on by to where he's one of the best in the business now. But, you know, to further your question, I think John Forslund does a terrific job. And then there's, you know, the new guys. I mean, Alex in L.A. is really good. And, um, I mean, you know, there are so many others that I got a kick out of Jack Edwards in Boston. I always have. Um, I, I'll end up leaving people out, which I don't want to do, rather than naming the ones that I really like. So, Let's just say that I think hockey broadcasting is still a strength of the NHLs. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm proud of Mirzi. I think at the end of this show, I'm going to have to tell you, you reminded me of a Mirzi story of the hiring process there. You talked about Brendan, great choice. And I'll have to share that story later on. Uh, Matto, Matto, Matto. So there's a big spot in the game. It's game seven in baseball or wherever. And you could feel it in some cases, you know, the center fielder catches the ball and it, it, would, it would only be right that the announcer would have already been thinking maybe even earlier in the day, maybe for two weeks as to what I'm going to say because it's that team's first championship in a while or something, right? But, you know, Matteau, Matteau, Matteau. Maybe you could tell me that some of the stuff that came after that was that, you know, in your head. But you did you think that if Nemchinov scored the goal, that you were going to say <laughs> Nemchinov, 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 or I don't know, Doug Glitzer play that game? Like, you know, Matteau, Matteau, Matteau works. So take us through that, please. If Alexander Solzhenitsyn would have scored the goal, I probably would have no. yelled Solzhenitsyn, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a very interesting and perceptive question you ask because. I totally agree. Well, first of all, let me say this, and I really believe this, that any broadcaster who's working in a situation like that, 
where there's a pennant or a cup or a trip to the final on the line, that as the game is moving into its final inning or period or minutes, I would submit that every announcer is at least giving a little thought as to how he wants to handle it, not necessarily the specifics of what he's going to say, but how do you want to handle it? And so it was that as the Rangers and Devils were coming down to the final minute, and this is in May of 1994 now, it's one to nothing Rangers. And as we all know by now, Valerie Zelopukin scored the goal that tied the game for New Jersey. Well, probably around the last five minutes of the third period, I said, okay, all I want to do is probably as the crowd goes three, two, one, the buzzer goes off, all I was going to say was, and there is one more hill to climb, period. And then let the crowd carry it just for about five, six, seven seconds, because on radio, you don't want to let the crowd carry it too long. Somebody just tuning in might not know what that's about. So that was my plan. 10 seconds to go, blah, 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 blah. And there's one more hill to climb. Yay! Well, Zelopukin changed all that. And so all bets were off. All bets were off. And when Matteau scored the goal, that line came to me. And so did this Mount Vancouver image, which I, I, I knew there was a Mount Vancouver because we'd been out that way just a couple of months before. But, but anyway, um, the only thing that was even semi-prepared was that one more hill to climb. Interesting. And so Matteau, Matteau just... Uh... I think did you say it three times. Did you say I, I hear it in threes? Yes, uh, yes. So, yes. so did, was there and, and and your color commentator like is he you know like is he is he jumping for joy or where, what what's what's that scene like? Uh, let's see. Well, I, I was remember. kind of the one that I was the one that was airborne, so I couldn't even find Sal. Um, you know what? It it was so sudden, but I'll admit this. I, I thought when I heard it the first time I got carried away, I'd never heard myself that crazy. So I was afraid of how I would feel about it for the next couple of hours or days or whatever. Well, Sal didn't help at all, of course, because he's one of the great jokesters of all time. We had so much fun because, you know, he's we just love to play practical jokes on each other and stuff. So now he's looking at the replay. The first time that he's breaking down the goal and if you can visualize it, Esatikinen was crashing the net as Matteau came around and Sal's watching the replay and he goes, I don't know if that's Matteau's goal. That might've been Esatikinen's, seriously. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, now what am I have to run into a studio and overdub Tikkanen, Tikkanen, Tikkanen? So, you know, Sal couldn't wait. I guess there's one other thing I should tell you. I don't, I don't know that I've told this one. I don't know that I've told this one on the air either, but it's, it's again, Sal, God bless him. He's the best. Um, I used to tease, you know, I knew Neil Smith as far back as when he was an Islander scout. We became friends. We'd run a little after games together. And so I had a good relationship with him. And when I was doing a talk show on WFAN and they had fired Phil Esposito, I campaigned for Neil because I thought they needed a guy whose background was in player development not in signing Marcel Dion and Blaine Stoutman and every other big free agent that came up. So anyway, knowing Neil as well as I did, I would tease him that, look, this team's jinxed. It's cursed. Let's face it. You know, if you win, great. But chances are you're going to be as frustrated as I was all those years. I would say that playfully. But I also 
would say it to Sal and he kind of got it, but I never, ever, ever said that on the air. Never, not when I was doing a talk show, not when I was doing the games. I never said this team is jinxed or cursed on the air. After I stopped yelling Matteau's name, one of the first things that Sal said almost parenthetically on the air, he almost slipped it in quietly. He goes, well, there's your curse for you. There's your jinx for you, Howie. So, you know, he spilled beans that I hadn't even put in the can. Now, you didn't have social media back then that would have been uh, commenting positively or imagine oh. negatively on any calls that you've done in the past. I do wonder if you were to join social media if you were doing hockey right now uh, because of the fast, you know, the nature of the game. But you decided to join recently. Do you, is, is it pass fail? Will you unplug it if it doesn't work for you? You're right, right, right now, it's going great. But, you know, we've seen the Mets owner come on and off. We've seen right. people join right. it and leave. Are you in a position where, you know, I see some announcers go after fans. Uh, are oh, you God. in a position? So, so you, did you, did you, you were finally ready at this stage of your career to say, all right, I can do this and manage it. I guess if you could tell, maybe I'm, as a friend, I'm a little concerned. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your thoughts on joining? Well, all right, let me, let me back you up. Um, I thought about it for a couple of years and there were a couple of employers, both on the TV and radio side who actually encouraged me a little bit and said, well, this would be great for the brand if, you know, not my brand, but their brand, if you can engage them. And, and, um, and I never trusted myself because I always thought that, all right, I had that second glass of wine with dinner and let's see, yeah, I can say this, who's gonna, nobody will care. Then I send it and it's whoops. So I just never trusted myself and that's why I refrained. But what happened was COVID and the pandemic mm. because when baseball shut down during spring training last year, 2020, and we'd already done some games, I felt a tremendous void. And especially once the season was supposed to have started, and I'm still back home in Florida, you know, just passing the time doing whatever I can, but wondering when baseball is going to start. That's when I really felt that I wanted to engage the fans. So I rolled the dice and I think I figured out where I should go and where I shouldn't. And if things are ever getting a little too hot, that's when I just step back, you know, and, and just leave that conversation. Um, and there have been a couple of things that I don't even think would even border on controversial, but people might read into and say, hey, what did you mean by that? Mm -hmm. And I'll explain it once and then let them have at it. You know, I'm not going to go back and forth explaining myself. Um, and so I've had fun with it. That's and great. I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. Great advice. What is your advice for young broadcasters and i would even say for baseball and hockey play by play what 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 are the things that i'm talking about ones going through college or even younger who want mm -hmm. to do what you've been able to do well the very first thing i would say and i've said this to kids in grade school all the way through college i've said there is one great way to learn how to speak and that is to listen and there's one great way to learn how to write, and that is to read. And what I mean by that is pick out people to emulate and just listen to how they present themselves. 
or if it's for a writer, read somebody that you enjoy reading over and over and get a feel for their style and see what they do. And to me, you cannot learn to speak properly unless you listen and pick out which sounds most appealing to your ears and then go after that. And I tell people all the time, I've always gotten a kick out of the fact that, especially in baseball, I think you can turn on a baseball game and almost instantly identify where that announcer grew up because his influence will be regional. There's a guy who's been a network broadcaster for years named Joel Myers. I mean, he sounds more like Vin Scully sometimes than Vin did. Um, so obviously he was a, a Southern California guy growing up. In New York, I mean, we all sound like Marv in the beginning, at least doing hockey, and I did too. And I had to learn how to kind of pull away from that. But with experience, you develop that style. Emulation is a great thing for a young broadcaster because they serve as training wheels. And then as you kind of, you know, get your sea legs and you get comfortable with the flow of the game, whatever sport it is, then you get rid of the training wheels and it's your show. But that takes time. Let me be very clear here. I'm not looking to create an opening for anybody. You sound great. Your energies is good. I still listen to you on the Mets as much as I can. Uh, but have you given any thought? Is there any target for how much longer? I mean, you're somebody who family life has meant a lot to you left one job that you love. So I think it's fair to ask, do you have any thoughts? You know, we can not tell your agent or the Mets or anybody, you know, but just for us as to how much longer you would like to do this in a perfect world. Well, the Mets broadcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll say one thing at the very beginning. I am not going to be one of these guys who hangs around into his upper 70s or 80s. I just I just don't see it. I, I don't understand it. There's more I want to do in terms of, first of all, I owe my wife. I mean, you know what Barbara's put up with um, for all these years is just ridiculous. Not even counting the broadcasting schedule. Right, exactly. <laughs> okay, it's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but first of all, you know, when you do what we do for a living, the last thing you want to do when you get a little time off is travel, right? Um, now, having not traveled the last couple of years because of the pandemic, maybe that'll shade it a little differently. But the long and the short of it is I'm not doing this until I'm 75, 80 years old. I'm 67 right now. I'll be 68 before next season starts. And, you know, God willing, I'm healthy. Um, my contract is guaranteed for two more seasons after this. And as I work out those next two years, again, God willing, I am going to be giving a lot of thought to whether I want to go beyond that, because that would get me to age 70. And um, I tell you this, if the Mets win the World Series, what year is this? 21. If the Mets win the World Series anytime between now and 2023, I'm done. I'll say that unequivocally, um, because there'll be nothing left for me. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking about what I want to do with the rest of my life, such as it is. And that uh, at the end of this next two and a half years, if you will, well, maybe that'll be it. Maybe I'll do a limited schedule. I don't know. But um, but I know I'm not going to be doing 162 games at the end of this contract, I don't think. I really appreciate that, Candor. It's a beautiful answer. We're going to take a quick break. When we return... Uh, I'll speak with Howie specifically about his years as the TV play-by-play -play voice of the New York Islanders. 
Hey everybody, it's Chris. I want to take a moment to thank and tell you all about Instat Hockey. I'm a subscriber and think of the world of their product. They were the first major company to jump on board as a presenting sponsor of my podcast. I can't thank them enough. Instat Hockey offers the largest statistical data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. Their work is trusted at every level of the game by coaches, scouts, players, and of course, members of the media, like the people we spotlight each week on press pass. The Instat hockey platform saves the user hours of time watching game film as team and player statistics are pre-cut into separate playlists including players individual shifts. All video clips can be edited, shared, and downloaded by the user. I've used their platform and so have many of the coaches I've worked with so check them out. Visit instatsport.com hockey today for more info. instatsport.com hockey. Hey guys, it's producer Pat Boyle, and it's been a great start to the NFL season, and it's only getting better at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. DraftKings is kicking off another week of action by giving all new customers a can't-miss offer. Bet just $1 on any football game this week and receive $150 in free bets instantly, no matter what. And this football season, all customers can swing big with DraftKings same-game parlays. Same-game parlays allow you to combine multiple bets for a bigger payout. This week, place a same-game parlay on any NFL game, and you will be credited up to $25 if your bet loses. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, and the best part is you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PRESSPASS to receive $150 in free bets instantly when you place a $1 bet on any football game. That's promo code PRESSPASS to get $150 in free bets instantly. This week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey only, new customers only, restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Please call 1-800-GAMBLER. This is Hockey Press Pass presented by Instat Hockey. We're back with Howie Rose, member of the New York Baseball Hall of Fame and National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame for his remarkable career as the voice of the Islanders, Rangers, and Mets. Time to talk, really drill down on your Islanders career here. We know there's a lot of people who want to hear from you on this. Let's start with this. What, what were your happiest memories calling Islander games? So many of them, Chris, were enveloped in that 2001-2002 season because that was what I called the renaissance year of the Islanders. After a long time out of the playoffs, all of which encompassed the time I'd been there as the play-by-play guy starting in 95-96. And you remember what it was like in, you know, 97-98 when there was a struggle to get anybody in the building and there were ownership issues. and You know, everything that could have conspired to drag down a once great franchise had done so. And I always believed that if they ever could stabilize from the ownership level on down and just get a good team on the ice, the fans would be that there was never any question that the fans would be back. And so when they broke through in 0102, well, that certainly uh, legitimized that thought and every game. And, and don't forget, too, it came on the heels of 9-11. And when that season started in October of 2001, the wound was very, very fresh. And the game provided a pretty good escape at the very least. And so to just be able to pour all of my, and not only mine, but everybody's energy into that season was rewarded from the get-go by the great start and the realization that, okay, the Islanders are back. People are flooding to the Coliseum again. 
It was magical. And the playoff series against Toronto, it was vicious, nasty, brutal, dirty. I loved every minute of it. <laughs> and it was, I wish I, wish I would have had 21, 2001, 2002 seasons just with, you know, longer playoff rides. We start, I remember we started off 11, 1, 1, and mm -hmm. 1. Yeah, right. There, there, were, there were four categories. That, right. I think we were about 500 the rest of the way, but that was good enough to finish 10 games over. It's like Jacques Perrier said whenever they were struggling later in the season, the Perrier said, all those games you win at the beginning of the year, they're like, they're in the pocket now. That's like money in the bank. Perfect. Uh, was there a moment when you came on board and I was with the team when you came on board to begin yeah. doing the TV? Of course, you uh, are associated with the Rangers and their Stanley Cup and uh, being a fan, even I don't you know, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't even hide behind that. We didn't try. We knew we were hiring a great announcer uh, that who we knew the fans would come to love and they did. But for you, was there a, a specific moment, a game, a play where you felt that you were embraced by the Islanders fans? Well, I. I felt comfortable from the beginning because I wasn't sure how anybody was going to accept me, but I knew the alumni, you know, because of those games I covered when I was at Queens College, going back to many of their career beginnings. So I knew the alumni would probably be okay with me. Eddie Westfall was great from day one, my first partner, but the fans were, you know, kind of a work in progress for all the reasons you stated. But when it was announced that Brian Trache was going to finally have his number retired, um, I remember, and this is already now in, in that great season, 0102. This is in October of 01, and I'd been there six years at that point. I'd never emceed any of the on ice ceremonies, nor did I felt, feel at the time I should have, because when they were bringing the championship teams back, that was Jiggs's gig or somebody else's. That, that were Barry, Barry Landers, of course. Um, but with Trache, it was different because I'd known Brian since 1979 when he came up to WHN as a guest DJ, um, and I had formed a pretty good relationship with him. So when I found out that you were retiring his number, I said, look, I don't care if I get booed. I don't care if they throw vegetables and fruits at me. I said, Brian's a friend. I want to do this for him. And I remember going to you and going to Mike and going, can we please make this happen? And I'll deal with the ramifications. And, you know, you guys both were very enthusiastic about embracing it. So we did. And I'd lie to you if I would be lying if I said it wasn't with some trepidation after I was introduced by PA, you know, what the reaction would be. But I was actually not only surprised, I was shocked at how positive it was. I mean, if I wanted to go all rabbit ears and listen for a few boos, I'm sure I could have found them. But the reaction that I got was so positive. It was a rush almost like, you know, announcing an overtime game winner, you know? So that was the day that I felt I arrived, not only as an Islanders broadcaster, but as an Islander and one that would be accepted by the fans. And from that point on, it was just great. That was, that's, that was a great day. And, uh, and I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you worked with a few different color commentators. Like, you know, everybody had different rhythms, different styles. I'm a little bit interested in that if there's something worth sharing between the differences of them. I'm also interested in, so, so Butchie is still there doing a great job with Brendan. Uh, Joe Micheletti moved over to, to the Rangers on MSG Network. Uh, Eddie obviously, you know, is retired, but uh, Billy Jaffe is doing great work in the Bruins studio, but I, I, I think he's really good. I'd like to see him be a color commentator. So, so it's a two-part question. The second part being, you know, uh, what do you, what did you think of Jaffe as a color commentator? Well, 
I will never get over the fact that the Islanders let him go. It was completely unjustified. It was so short-sighted because, and look, full disclosure, Billy and I became almost instant friends, you know, had lunch with him when he was here on the island during the Stanley Cup playoffs. It was great to reconnect. Um, our families got friendly when he lived here. And my heart broke when, when they let him go because there was just nothing, no matter how often I tried, whoever I talked to, it was like talking to a brick wall. They just had it in their mind that they wanted to make a change. And this has nothing to do with Butchie at all because Butchie, thank goodness, you know, and I'm really proud for him and of him, of the way he's grown into that job and done a tremendous job of, of becoming, you know, uh, an Islander legend behind the mic, never mind just on the ice. But, um, but what Billy did for that franchise, for the Islanders, the way he, the way he carried himself with the fans, there was nothing he wouldn't do to endear himself to the Islanders, to endear the Islanders, to the community, to, you know, just embrace every bit of Islander culture from the moment he got there. And the fans, at least to my understanding, loved him. He should still be there. And again, this has nothing to do with Butch, um, but it never should have happened. And I've always been angry about that. And um, I know he handled it really well, but, you know, he should still be doing, he should be doing games for somebody you know, but unfortunately, his not having played in the NHL works against him, which is just absurd. The Islanders were smart enough at, at that point when they hired him to take the leap of faith that he would be good. I mean, he wasn't good. He was great. He was perfect. He, should, he, he could be there. He could have been there for 30, 40 years and okay. should have been. Did any difference between working with the different guys alongside you or did, did that come easily for you? Oh, they're all, first of all, I, I love adjusting to different partners every so often you don't want to do it too frequently but you know eddie <laughs> i mean first off when i heard the name ed westfall for the first time it was as a member of the hated boston bruins so i got a kick out of telling eddie you know how many of his alumni save for a couple um with the bruins i used to detest as a kid and Eddie would get a great kick out of introducing me to them whenever we were up in Boston, if they happened to be there. And the only guy who didn't have a sense of humor about it is may he rest in peace, Johnny McKenzie. Uh, the rest were great. Bobby Orr is larger than life. He's just one of my all-time favorite people in sports. And he transcended rivalries, even Phil too, and, and Derek Sanderson to an extent. But I loved working with Eddie because of all the history, not only with the Islanders, but with the Bruins. And then Joe was you know, the perfect example of the new age analyst who could have done anything in hockey he wanted to. He could have been the commissioner of this game if he wanted to. I know he could have been the general manager of the Islanders at one point. Mike Milbury actually asked Joe, uh, I'm sorry, Charles Wong asked Joe after it was announced that Mike Milbury would not be back as GM. He asked Joe to interview for the job, but Joe did not want to give up his summers. And so he said, no, thank you. And, um, and Joe was like working with JD, you know, he knew everybody in the league. He knew everything that there was to know about the game, the sport, the people, the I mean, Joe's just one of the finest human beings I've ever worked with. So that was great. And then when Joe left, I'm thinking, well, now what? And they bring Billy in and that was a godsend. Mm -hmm. And then Billy leaves. And again, I'm dragging my tail and here comes Butch. And I'm telling you, sitting next to Butchie on those charters and hearing the stories, just, you know, they, they got to where they just, we didn't have to ask anymore. 
They left a whole bottle of wine in the seat pocket where Butchie and I sat. And we would share it over a flight. And um, I love them. I mean, you know, I, I feel privileged to have worked with every single one of them. Very big picture question goes to the Mets as well. I think of a of a play by play voice, especially somebody who's going to be in that position a long time, whether it's radio, TV, both. You know, you in some ways become the voice face of the franchise. Uh, players come and go. I, you know, there's Jeter's and there's David Wright's or whatever. But but you know, you are somebody who the fans look to. So it would seem to me that if I'm the Wilpons, if I'm Steve Cohen, uh, if I'm Charles Wong, if I'm uh, the GMs of the teams, whether it be Mike Milbury, Garth Snow, I want to foster a relationship and you with them as well. So. I'm going to keep this pretty broad, but what has that been like for you, positives, negatives through these years? With owners? Owners and, ge and general managers, leadership. Well, well, let's start with owners. Um, I've always had pretty good relationships with them. With the Islanders, it was a little funky because half of them, the whole time I was there, wound up in jail. So, you know. That's why I only named Charles. <laughs> What's that? That's why I only named Charles. Yeah, uh, exactly. But, you were there for all of them, right? But certainly two of the guys that hired me, jail, uh, Spano, jail, uh, Sanjay Kumar, jail. So, you know, that was a challenge, getting to know Islander owners. And Charles was such a mercurial individual. Um, it was a challenge. Charles could be a little bit of a challenge um, because some days you never knew how he was going to blow, hot or cold, you know? Um, but it took a while for him to accept me too, I think. He was a little um, reluctant to invest in me, knowing that I worked for the Mets as well. I think he wanted, I know that he wanted somebody to be a singular voice of the Islanders. And, you know, I kind of pled my case and, uh, and eventually it worked out. And, and I developed a very good relationship with him and was shocked because I knew nothing about his illness, shocked. To have hear to have heard of his passing, it was just awful, um, because I really never got to properly thank him for for what he did for me. Um, the Wilpons, when you talk about the Wilpons, you also have to say Saul Cats, because you know Saul and Fred partners and, and Jeff, of course, uh, all three of them for the entirety of my time with the Mets were just fabulous and um, did a lot for my family and me. And so I made sure to reach out and call each one of them and thank them after the sale went through. Um, Steve Cohen, I've gotten to know on a very, very limited basis, hardly know him at all. Uh, I can give you a better answer on that in a year or two if you want to revisit this. I just don't know him yet, so uh, I don't mean to sort of abstain from that part of it. But as far as GMs are concerned, um, you know, I go back to Mike Milbury and, you know, for all of the shenanigans and for all of what he had to deal with, which I don't think people ever really appreciated what Mike was up against. And yeah, he made some zany trades. And I know there are a lot of things you could look at and say, you know, if he didn't do this, they might've been there. Never mind that. Um, I just look at how a guy treated me and Mike couldn't have been better for me. He, um, I'll never forget this. I don't know if it was the first year, because remember he became GM about halfway through that first year, 95, 96. And um, it was either that season or maybe early in the next one when things obviously were not developing the way he'd like. He called me up to sit with him on the charter, wherever we were going. And he said, you got a few years left on your contract, right? I said, yeah. He said, okay, so you're gonna be here. Let me explain what's going on. And he told me chapter and verse about where the franchise was. At that point, I guess they were looking for ownership. 
which turned into Spano, whole other show, I'm sure. But the point is that Mike really, really incorporated me into everything, you know? And he's a guy that you could have a, a, a pretty strong argument with. And next day, it was like your buddies again, you know? I, he never held a grudge. I have nothing but admiration for Mike Milbury. Glad to hear that. You, you had two dream jobs. When, you know, when you think of the kid upstairs, you know, recording games, play by play, like, did you, it always stayed fresh for you? Did you pinch yourself? Like, did you, were you able to enjoy the ride continues in one of the spots, but were you able, do you feel you were able to enjoy it the whole way through and, and, and think, wow, look, look, look where I landed. I have never, ever, ever even come close to taking that for granted because I always, I think part of it too is that I'm very fortunate in that many of my closest friends have been friends since childhood. And you know, when you're 67 and you go back to public school and, and high school with some guys, you're talking 50, 60 years of friendship. And so, you know, just being around them and, and, and you know, living not far from where I grew up in Bayside, I always see little reminders or mileposts. I, I never fail at some point to step back and go, wow, because I started following the Rangers, as I said, in 1966, became the president of the Marb Albert fan club the next summer. And all I wanted to do is be a broadcaster in the NHL. The thought that it could be with the Rangers was just beyond belief. And then the Islanders come into existence. And now I'm in college and I'm going to those games and you know, playing my tapes for Holly Chester thinking, well, the Islanders are a new team. Maybe he'll hire some college kid to do games next year or whatever. Um, and then, of course, the Mets, which, you know, is just surreal to think that a kid with virtually no athletic ability like myself could, you know, be doing what I've been doing for the three teams that mean so much to me. Well, what were the odds, right? If you had to try to calculate what the odds would be, they'd be off the charts. So I, I'm, I never lose sight of that fact. And I'm very, very, very humbled by it. At the minute or so that we have left, uh, I was wondering your reaction to seeing the Islanders, the way they closed out the barn on Henstead Turnpike this year. I, I, I imagine that had to feel good and look good to you. Yeah, good. A little bittersweet from the standpoint of, man, I wish I'd been calling those games, you know, or I wish I'd even been there. But by the same token, what you have to accept, and it's not an easy thing to do, is that when you do TV nowadays, this is another thing I love about radio. If you're doing the team's games on radio, you're going for the whole ride. When you're working a team's games on television in the NHL, you're done after the first round, and then networks take over. And that's got to be awfully frustrating because, you know, you're with that team all year from training camp through the playoffs, and yet, you know, you're not there for maybe the, the greatest moment of the year. And, and that's very disappointing. But you enjoyed seeing, seeing oh, what was going on. Absolutely. And I, I'm really, I'm really anxious. I hope I get to go to a game at UBS, you know, at some point. Because I'll tell you, from what I've seen, that ceiling looks pretty low for a new building, which means it's going to be loud. And that's exactly what you want to have. No, that's fantastic. For what it's worth, my choice is Beatles. I'm going one of each, one in each of the categories across the universe. Great poetry. Something. Beautiful. 
I mean, I, I never get tired of it. And I would normally go here, there, and everywhere because I think it's just perfect. And I, I am bad at guitar, but just like the, the little changes are incredible, the words, everything. But then at the end, I was like, I got to go Hey you because sure. it, especially if you don't hear it for a little while and then it comes on, it just blows me away. So loved your choices as well. Well, there's a great line that I heard for the first time by an old friend of ours named Al Morganti, former mm. hockey writer yeah. who's still a broadcaster in Philadelphia, I believe. And I'll apply this to the Beatles. Um, you could take George Harrison, who struggled to get any more than two songs on any album, right? Sometimes only one. Mm -hmm. You could make the case between something, Here Comes the Sun, and especially While My Guitar Gently Weeps, that he had three of the 10 greatest Beatles songs of them all. So as Al Morganti once said, you have to have depth. Even the Three Stooges had shemp. <laughs> very, very good. Howie, thank you so much for joining our podcast. My pleasure, Chris. Be well. Thank you. All right, guys. Producer Pat Boyle here now with Chris. And wow, that was that was an absolute treat to listen to Howie. Somebody I, along with many others, have grown up listening to, whether it was the Islanders, whether it was the Mets, whether it's still the Mets. Uh, wow. The, the openness, how candid he was with everything about broadcasting and his personal life. I mean... I mean, Chris told you told you maybe two years, you know, left on his contract, and he, you know, doesn't know where that might be the the end for him. I mean, you know, some of my takeaways: one, again, you know, obviously he's fantastic to listen to the stories he can retell, but just how much he kind of pulled back the curtain there, I, I thought was fantastic. Um, loved being able to listen to Howie, as I'm sure everybody else just did. What, what were some of your biggest takeaways? Honestly, I'm just so uh, grateful. I'm indebted to Howie. Asked him to come on. And, you know, everybody comes on and, and does great jobs in their interviews. But Howie, it seemed to me, was so kind and thoughtful that he went into it as, you know, we are friends. We worked together a while ago. And it, and it was like he wanted to drop some, some insights and some, even some news with where things stand with this contract. And, you know, he doesn't have to do that for me. Uh, there's other people he could do that with. I, I'm just... My biggest takeaway is just gratitude, really. It was, uh, but he, he was funny. I think Islander fans came to love him quickly, and you could see why. He is an honest guy. Yeah, he was old enough that the it was the Rangers were the only team in town. So of course he was a Ranger fan growing yeah, up. Exactly. That's just the way the math is. So it was my <laughs> older brother. So, but then you know, then you become. He starts bleeding Islander blue. He loved that team as much as anybody. Uh, his comments about Billy Jaffe. Uh, it was just he was awesome. So thank you, Howie, and I hope everybody enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, definitely. And and you know, going along with Howie. He is uh, obviously um, the favorite broadcaster of many Islander fans, many Ranger fans, many baseball fans. Uh, really, anybody who knows the name knows Howie and loves him for uh, being such a tremendous broadcaster and the excitement that he brings to every single game. So I know on Twitter we asked a bunch of your followers, who is your favorite broadcaster? And uh, we got a, definitely got a lot of interesting uh, interesting names and results. Yeah, I mean, now, to be honest, obviously, 
it, it could be a little bit skewed because I think a decent <laughs> amount of my followers, and thank you to everybody uh, who's ever followed or read my stuff or is listening to the show, uh, a lot of them are Islander fans. So, you know, Jiggs McDonald probably uh, came in first, and I got no problem with that. He's a Hall of Famer for good reason. He called uh, the games of a dynasty. Howie Rose uh, got a lot of votes as well. Brendan Burke, deservedly so. I mean, uh, to, have, to go from Jiggs to Howie to Brendan is just an unbelievable treat for Islander fans. Uh, Brendan does a fantastic job. Uh, Mike Emmerich got a lot of a lot of responses. Interesting to me that nobody seems to know how to spell Mike Emmerich's last name because <laughs> they, there were probably 20 different spellings of Emmerich. Uh, seemed to be a Philadelphia contingent, which is a coincidence for me, but a lot of votes for Gene Hart, the legendary former voice of the Philadelphia Flyers, and also Merrill Reese, the announcer, longtime announcer of the Eagles. I am blessed to say in a charmed career uh, that when I went to LaSalle University in Philadelphia, I got to intern for Merrill Reese uh, doing his Eagle broadcast and his sports updates on WIP. And then I was an intern in the Flyers PR department when Gene Hart uh, was at his best as the play-by-play -play man for the Flyers, so it was nice to see the votes there. Other people getting votes, and by the way, uh, Pat, it was thrown out for all sports, so Bob Murphy, Vin Scully, Sam Rosen with the Rangers, of course, Dan Kelly, the great NHL announcer, Mike Breen, of course, on the NBA, mm -hmm. Mel Allen, so I, 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 apparently I have followers older than me, which is nice, Bob <laughs> Cole, Gary Thorne, uh, people are very nostalgic about Gary and his time at ESPN, and I get it. Uh, just a great voice, and I know uh, you liked his work as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think he is like synonymous. I hear the ESPN NHL theme, which I hope they bring that back mm -hmm. once the NHL goes back to the ES goes back to ESPN. Uh, Gary Thorne's the first voice I think of when I when I hear that theme. I think of his opening statement, you know, him opening up a broadcast, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, even being able to hear Gary Thorne still, uh, you know, filling in for Gary Cohen on SNY for a couple of Mets broadcasts this summer, uh, this past summer was, was tremendous. So, yeah, Gary, Gary Thorne obviously always uh, sheds uh, and, and bleeds kind of nostalgia, I think, for anybody that had the opportunity to, to watch him or listen to him call games. And I will say, uh, just from a personal experience, I was trying to think, like, do I have, like, a great story to tell about working with play-by-play -play announcers around the league? And I have to say, like, they were all, I don't have any great stories. And that's a good thing, because that means there really weren't any problems. Uh, you know, listen, I know they like to have the line combination, so they weren't always happy with Peter Laviolette, as we spoke to with Howie, uh, when Peter didn't want to give everybody the lineup and the strategy <laughs> for that night's game. But other than that, I mean, everybody was so great. Um, Mike Emmerich... Um, was just incredible on a personal level to me and is the, the the nice person you see on the air that is how he is in real life uh, so I don't have any like great intriguing stories because they were all uh, gentlemen and I know the game is in good hands now my question to you Pat is in any sport as well as a as a play-by-play -play announcer yourself who are your favorites who are the ones who inspire you yeah I think just overall all-encompassing I I an eagle uh, somebody mm -hmm. that I look up too and I think he every game he calls it feels like for football it feels like the Super Bowl for basketball it feels like the NBA finals he is he just brings the game to another level of life when he calls a game it's always upbeat it's always full of energy it's always basically perfectly called in terms of mechanics just the rhythm that he calls a football or a basketball game with or any other sport he has done in the past 
Um, Ian, for me, is, is somebody that is a, is a living legend, a future Hall of Famer, somebody that I look up to in a big way. But, you know, for hockey, and again, you know, no, no surprise here, Doc. You know, Mike Emmerich, uh, being able to listen to him call the Stanley Cup for all those years was just a, it's a, it's a treat that I think so many people you, you take for granted. His wordsmanship, mm-hmm. it, it might be the best of any broadcaster that has maybe ever lived. And I know that is a lot, especially when you consider Vin Scully and some of the other tremendous play-by-play broadcasters. But it's almost as if, you know, you could create a whole dictionary of, of Doc Emmerich invented words or words mm-hmm. that, you know, you only, you hear a word and you think, oh, Doc Emmerich used that once, waffle boarding or something like that. <laughs> Just incredible. Um, and then, you know, as a, a kind of a, uh, another one, consolation as well, because you mentioned him, and he's obviously the broadcaster of the Islanders. Brendan does an incredible job. Him too, with you know his calls, making everything so concise, doing a perfect job of letting the crowd become just as much of a call as he is, which I think is such an underrated skill as a play-by-play broadcaster. Something I try to perfect myself, um, but. Yeah, Brendan. Brendan's a great job, and you mentioned it to go from the list of line and then from Howie to Brendan, and especially now he's getting the credit he deserves, the recognition, doing some stuff for NBC, and going forward, he's he's uh, he's awesome. And it was a great insight, one of many by Howie, where he told us about how MSG Network kind of included him in the process of. Uh, yeah, I don't think he had the ultimate choice of his successor, but he had two very uh, strong candidates that yeah. he suggested: Steve Mears and Brendan Burke. And Renner Burke, and he, um, it was just, uh, it meant a lot to him, I think, that he was able to make that recommendation, and he left the, uh, the team in good hands. And the, the art of play-by-play is something that fascinates me, will be a part of this show. In future episodes, we will be talking to other play-by-play announcers, including Kenny Albert, so I look forward to that. Absolutely, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Hockey Press Pass. Please consider rating us and subscribing at Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, and Stitcher. And, of course, email us anytime at presspasspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Hockey Press Pass.